Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, a great beery foam is one of the first signs that a beer is going to be a treat. I'm sitting down with Jen Blair of Under the Ginfluence and the Cicerone Certification Program to discuss what factors make for a great rocky foam and a perfect carbonation in your beer. But first, a message from our sponsors. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Air Still Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflux mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Air Still Pro calm cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Air Still Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Air Still Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Up your IPA game with homebrewing techniques, craft beer clone recipes, and a free book from the American Homebrewers Association. Push your brews to the limits with Brewing Eclectic IPA by Dick Cantwell. Or dive into the science and history with IPA, brewing techniques, recipes, and the evolution of India Pale Ale by Mitch Steele. Join for one year and receive your choice from 60 different brewing books. Head to homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for offer details. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. And welcome back to the episode. And once again, if you interact with any of our fine sponsors, please tell them that you heard about them here on the Brew Files. Now, as I said in the intro, bubbles, we know them. We love them, except for some consumers who seem to never want to bubble on the top of their beer glass. So since I know a little bit about foam, but I don't know enough, I figured we'd uh, go in and call in the big artillery. So, Jen, say hi. Hi. <laughs> tell everybody who you are. <laughs> Hey, everyone. I am Jen Flair, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. I'm, as somebody who's been homebrewing for quite a while, this is a very big deal for me to be a guest on here. Um, but yeah, so I am uh, currently a, an advanced Cicerone. I am a uh, national BJCP beer judge, and I, for my full-time job, I work as the exam manager for the Cicerone certification program. I often joke that I'm all beer all the time because even outside of work, I'm usually doing something beer related. I'm a huge sensory nerd and it seems like I am never not studying for some sort of a beer exam. And, uh, you know, that kind of, that's what led me down this road with foam and carbonation was 
realizing that I kind of had a basic understanding of both. But if you asked me to be technical about it, I would have no idea. Um, So, you know, that's kind of a huzzah. It's a learning opportunity. And I spoke with Dave Carpenter at Zymergy, and we decided that I would turn this into a technical article that was in last year's technical issue um, all about foam. Uh, So I'm, I'm super excited to be talking about foam and carbonation with you today. So two questions. How long do you think it will take before you have every exam certification under your belt? Um, hopefully by the end of this year. There we go. And yeah, until they introduce like Supermaster and then, you know, then I've got something else to go for. There we go. It's it's just going to be constantly climbing the peak, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's there. Now, you, obviously you're obsessed about beer. How did you get started with that obsession? Well, I have always enjoyed drinking beer and I'm very much a, have a maker mindset. I like to figure out how things work. And, you know, I found out that I could make my own beer. So I started home brewing and that led me into beer judging, which led me down the path to Cicerone. I decided that I wanted to try to be in beer full time as a job, you know, in, in 2015, a lot of people had similar thoughts. And for me, homebrewing has really been the backbone of, of all of my, my beer education and getting me more and more into beer because it's, you know, it's just a great way to apply that theory that you've been learning. And I eventually made the move full time into the beer industry in 2017. I was the first executive director for the Craft Monsters Guild. Uh, and as we'll talk later today, uh, I have a huge soft spot in my heart for malt. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I love talking about foam so much, because malt's really the star of the show. Do you remember what your your first beer experience is? And I'll tell you mine because it ties into this topic. <laughs> yes. The first beer I brewed uh, was a pale ale that I bittered with marigolds rather than hops. And it was extremely bitter, but it was an interesting experiment. I definitely went through the beginner homebrewer phase where it was trying to make, you know, like a, a Thai chili pale ale or, you know, like a cucumber lemon saison. Um, and most of them t- did not turn out well. I, if I if I could have a time machine, like I know everyone says, oh, I would go back and kill Hitler. Um, part of me is like, I would kind of want to go back and taste those homebrews from when I first started and thought that they were just the best because I made them um, and, and see how terrible they really were. Uh, but yeah, so that was my first one was a pale ale bittered with marigolds. Right. And so the the first memory that I have that I think ties into our topic here is I remember my dad, this would have been back in like 1980, 1981. God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, cracking open a cold low and brow. Mm-hmm. while sitting on the couch and watching professional wrestling, because that's what you did back in the day. Right. And I sit, I was sitting with him, and he let me have a sip of it. And the main thing I remember about it, okay, bitter, right, because kid. Right. Uh, but also just the incredible amount of carbonation and, the, like, the prickling sensation. And I yes. One of those things that when I first started to think about beer, that was what was always in my mind about it. So that's part of the reason why I thought carbonation and foam would be a good topic. Right. Because I think a lot of people screw this up. Yes. And I agree with you. And that's actually something that I've been training a little more closely on um, with my palate is distinguishing the difference between very high carbonation and bitterness on your palate because they have a very similar effect. And I was actually doing a blind tasting where I had a Budweiser 
and was thinking this is really, this is bitter. So this can't be an American lager. And then realizing, no, this isn't bitterness that I'm tasting. This is the, the, the very high carbonation. Yeah. Well, and that's actually an important point. Like you go and look like Bud Light. I think Bud Light's recipe is something like four to six IBUs, something mm-hmm. ridiculous. And, and Budweiser is not much better or right. much higher, not better, better subjective. It's not much <laughs> higher, but yeah, they get a, they get a big boost in that break from carbonic acid. Right. right. So yeah, it's very, very important for those, those styles. So tell people why are we obsessed with foam and carbonation? Why does it matter? When it comes to beer, foam and carbonation are defining characteristics, right? As, as part of the experience of enjoying the beverage, if you had a flat beer or, uh, you know, a beer with no foam is just not, it's not going to look as appetizing. It's not going to taste as appetizing. Um, so, you know, particularly carbonation is when it, particularly when we're talking about alcoholic drinks, carbonation is such a defining feature of beer. And it is something, uh, like I was saying earlier with, you know, with foam and carbonation, both, it's something that we know should be in beer, but when do we really look closely at it? Or do we, do we know kind of some old wives tales about how, what's going to make good foam or what's going to make good carbonation and do those really work? What, what is your opinion of like, cause you've had to have seen this before with like the, you know, the, the crusty old customer who wants a beer with zero head because you're stealing money from me. Right. <laughs> I always laugh about that one. Yeah. And I've definitely worked, uh, I've worked in a beer bar where I, I had some customers like that who would, you know, order, order, you know, like a, let's say a Hefeweizen and be like, why is there so much foam in this beer? And, you know, then it's, again, it's huzzah, it's an educational opportunity, um, whether they want to hear that or not. But yeah, there's definitely those people out there who want like the Iceman pour up to the very top every single time, no foam. And I mean, foam is such an enjoyable part of, you know, of the beer drinking experience. See, and I can't imagine objecting to the foam on a hef because right. that's actually the foam on a hef is actually delicious. Right, exactly. <laughs> From an organoleptic point of view, besides the visual, what is what does good carbonation give us? Good carbonation is, uh, and it's the same with foam. You know, it's going to be kind of a balance between what what trade offs you're willing to make as a brewer to get that final product, uh, but you know. Good carbonation is going to enhance those flavors, is going to help kind of liven up your palate. And if you've got something that's, you know, has has a lot of flavor in it or something like that, the carbonation is going to help scrub your palate and kind of help it reset uh, for you to, you know, for you to be able to continue enjoying that. Um, obviously, you don't want it to be too carbonated because then we get into that kind of carbonic bite. Uh, and of course, this is all style dependent. Uh, and when you get that carbonic bite, you know, it can almost be sour. So that can affect your perception of the entire beer. On the other hand, if you don't have enough carbonation, it's just going to taste kind of like bitter sugar water. So, the, you know, there's a balance there for enhancing that that sensory experience. You know, somewhere out there, there's somebody that just heard that phrase, bitter sugar water. And went, I'll take one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? One per person. Don't park next door. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a reason why we have all these styles and techniques and whatnot, but still. Have you actually, have you seen the, I've seen some breweries now taking like big barrel aged beers and mm-hmm. serving them port style. 
So like the, they're kind of referring to them as port beers. And so now they're still, and I'm still not entirely certain if I, if I'm on board with that. I agree. I would try it. Nope. I, yes, I agree. I would try it. I'm not sure off a, it doesn't sound good. It's kind of like if somebody's like, Hey, we're serving our whiskey carbonated now. Like I don't, it just doesn't sound appetizing to me. The burn, the burn. <laughs> yeah. No, that, <laughs> wow. I think I could just taste that. And that's not a good taste. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So foam, it's not soap bubbles. It's something else. So in a, in a beer, what, what's making up our foam? So with good foam, it's, it's a variety of factors and it's, it's a lot for me. It's also a lot like your water chemistry, where a lot of times it can be a case of one step forward, two steps back. And you're doing these trade-offs to get good foam or get good enough foam. But with your foam, you know, colder temperature, the colder your, your beer is, the better your foam is going to be. Uh, the higher the carbonation, obviously, the better your foam is going to be. Do you have nitrogen um, in there? Any like any amount of nitrogen blend with CO2 is going to result in better foam. Uh, you know, what is your your mash? What does your malt profile look like? That's that's going to be the biggest determinant of what your foam is going to be. So, you know, if we made a beer, say, with 100% wheat, we would have a beautiful fluffy head that's going to be really long lasting, but then you're trading that off with, you know, having a stuck mash or a lauder that takes forever. So, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off there, or, you know, you could use, let's say black patent malt has excellent foam abilities, but you can't use that in a Hellas. Um, you could, I guess, and it wouldn't be a Hellas by definition, but uh, you know, all of those different factors come into what's going to make good foam in your beer. Yeah. And speaking of which, I don't know, Modern Craft World, I, I interviewed a brewery a couple of years back. They made a black Kolsch. Okay. Caught a lot of flack for that one. But it was fun. <laughs> At least it's not like Kolsch isn't, you know, where like Hellas is light. So it's, it's not like you're, you know, you're making like a Dunkel Hellas. Uh, I guess you could, though. I mean, there's, you know, there's no beer style, please. Right. So nobody's no, that, going to come to arrest you. Yeah. That's kind of like the old argument that people get into about like black IPA, right? It's, right. It's not pale. <laughs> people, IPA has just come to mean to people's minds, a hoppy beer. Right. The, the letters don't matter anymore. Right. No, it's just, it's anarchy when it comes to IPAs. <laughs> anarchy in the IPA? Yeah. Sounds like a IP anarchy. That's actually what it is now. All right. I'll take it. All right. <laughs> So you mentioned um, in in the malt, uh, you know, obviously wheat making good uh, heading. Uh, if I'm looking at my base malts, right, that that soul of my beer, what do I need to look for to help me make better foam? If you're looking to make better foam, I would say the highly modified malts, which most of the malts we can buy today are well modified. I, I don't think that they would necessarily fall into the highly modified. Um, a highly modified malt is going to be detrimental to your foam. So I guess I can answer this question by telling you as you're looking at your malt bill, what you wouldn't want to include. Um, the higher the melanoidins are in your malt, the better foam you're going to get. But the other thing that we're introducing when we're using malt is going to be lipids, which are fats, and those are going to be foam negative. So in malt, there's going to be some small amount of lipids. So again, that's just something that you kind of accept when you're using it. Uh, 
But, and this is one of the more controversial things about when we're talking about foam is caramel malts, you know, even something like carafoam or carapils are actually found to behave more like lipids in a beer. So they're going to be foam negative, um, which a lot of people use them thinking that it's going to be foam positive. And this is one of those areas that is for me, at least, it's a very rare area of brewing science that they haven't really quite figured out why that is. But the hypothesis is that caramel malts are going to react more like lipids in your mash. So if you've got something that's going to have, you know, a, 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 and you're not going to have any recipe probably with a huge amount of caramel malts in there. But just know as you're looking with your malt bill that those have the potential to impact your foam in a negative way. Whereas if you're using, you know, your well-modified um, Rartiro or Maris Otter or something like that, you're going to get an adequate amount of foam. If you can use something like Black Patent Malt, um, something that's been highly kiln that has a lot of melanoidins in it, you're going to have better foam. Um, like I mentioned with wheat, wheat will give you fantastic foam since it's higher in protein. Um, oats can as well, but then they also are introducing more lipids. So oats are kind of a like a just a wash in terms of foam. Well, speaking of somebody who's made a 100% malted oat beer, I couldn't get ahead on that dang thing if I tried. Yeah. <laughs> also, it ended up tasting like a ham sandwich for some reason, but that's, okay. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like there's not really any, it's not like I can go and look at my malt analysis and go, ooh, okay, this has got, uh, you know, this amount of protein in it. This will be really good for heading, right? There's, there's no like simple shortcut that I can do as a dummy. Right, right. And I, I mean, I would say if, if foam, if a certain foam outcome was your major goal, then yes, you could probably get more into um, maybe you're doing like a high protein, like closer to a six row or closer to something that, you know, like Miller Coors or somebody like that uses. Those are high in protein malt. So you could get better results. You could also use adjuncts like rice and corn because they're not going to have lipids, but they're still going to have some protein. So, I mean, you could do that, but again, it's really looking holistically of what, what is the most important thing for me in terms of the finished beer and what are the best ways to accomplish that? So that's malt and adjuncts, as you say, are kind of a mixed bag, right? Because right. I've definitely used some corn that came with corn oils attached to it. I've used malted corn, for instance, that seemed to do mm -hmm. better. Um, but yeah, adjuncts are weird. Right. Adjuncts are weird. <laughs> That's malt. But what about water, right? If, if malt is making the base, base of our beer, water is really sort of what we're resting on. Right. What, what can I do with my water to make either my foam great or to really screw up my foam? That's an interesting question. So I would say with water, one thing that you're going to want to do, and this seems like it's kind of, you know, a, a gimme, but when you're brewing, you know, you want to make sure that your equipment, your water is free of detergents because those are going to be foam negative. Those tend to act like lipids. And really what I would focus on with your water, with your brewing water would be one, knowing what the chemical makeup is and then adjusting your water profile for whatever your malt looks like. And again, that's going to be, you know, what do you want that finished flavor to be? But let's say, um, you know, like usually a, a higher mash temperature will give you more foam. 
Uh, so you might want to, you know, be adjusting your, your water profile so that your, it will accommodate a, a mash profile where you're up, you know, let's like, you're up in like the 155 kind of in that alpha amylase area to get that extraction. Um, but really other than that, I mean, I think it's just knowing what's in your water, your source water that you're using, how you're going to do, adjust your water to maximize whatever mash results you're wanting. Okay. So I don't have to worry about like, if let's say I do the effusive homebrew thing that we were just talking about before with your dandelion or sorry, marigold beer. Yeah. I just kind of step on the gas. I don't like, I'm not going to screw, screw up my foam if I add like an excessive amount of calcium carbonate or chloride or something like that. Right. Right. Okay. That, that is my understanding. I will tell you that I'm not 100% on that, on that answer, but um, with my water chemistry knowledge, I can't imagine that you would be adding too much of anything that's going to make it, uh, make it foam negative. That wouldn't also then just impact the flavor mm-hmm. of your beer. Do we, do we have any pH concerns? Usually the lower the pH, the better foam that you will have. Um, obviously the reverse side of that is the higher pH, the, the lower or the worse your foam retention will be. Um, I am not a pH expert, so I can just tell you that that is what I've read. And I can't, I can't tell you in detail why that is. Well, I mean, I could make up a common sense reason in my head for it, but that would be a common mm-hmm. sense reason. And we know how often that's actually correct. Uh, you know, <laughs> kind of relating pH and soap and all that sort of fun stuff, which. Right, right. You know, eh. There might be something there, but then again, that might all also be a bunch of hogwash in my mind. Right, right. And and I will say also, when we're talking about pH, like a lower pH, this is going to be like 5.1 and below. So it, like in your normal brew day, you're going to end up with a low enough pH that you're, that's not going to affect your foam. Um, all right. So we got the malt, we got the water. Water seems pretty rock solid. With the mash, we were talking, obviously, there's like things like protein rest and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, my understanding would be that doing like a protein rest would be foam negative, right? Uh, particularly with a lot of modern malts. Right. Yes, correct. Yeah. A protein rest would be foam negative. So, and then everything else is really about, and, and, and to explain to people, the reason for that is because down those lower levels is when you have the protease happening, the protease action happening, and those will chop up proteins, which you then need later for foam. So we got the, the the mash. You'd mentioned hops are foam positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a perfect example if people want to ever see how that is, and it's not an IPA, is go look at Duval. Yes, part of the reason Duval has that head is because of hops. Right. What, what's the impact with hops? How how can I boost or decrease my my foam? So with your hops, that's going to be specifically your isomerized alpha acids that are going to be the role they play in foam is that they form kind of this protective coating around your carbonation bubbles. And they also link up, they have hydrophobic. So hydrophobic being, you know, it it wants to escape from water. They're hydrophobic and they also connect with those hydrophobic proteins uh, in the malt. And that's like the, the malt proteins are going to give you kind of that stability and the hop, isomerized alpha acids are going to be what kind of protects the bubbles from, you know, from going out of the solution. So if you're looking for good foam, you want to be using some sort of bittering hop addition, right? Because we're going to get those isomerized alpha acids in the boil. And the longer that you've boiled, you know, the more iso alpha acids you're going to have. 
Uh, so let's say you're doing like a 60 minute charge as opposed to you're not doing any bittering charge and you're just adding in the whirlpool. You don't have that isomerization happening. So you're not going to get those same iso alpha acids extracted from your uh, from your hops to be able to have that better foam. So you want your bittering hops and, you know, we can, like, I, we can go into the, like, isohumulone, isocohumulone, um, adhumulone, the, all of them will have foam stabilization abilities, but the isocohumulone is the least effective. And those are the ones that are usually found in noble hops. Uh, so, you know, looking at your alpha acids and determining how long you're going to have bittering additions of hops is going to help you have better foam retention, assuming you're doing, you know, a, a fairly good bittering charge. There you go. Yet another reason not to do an all whirlpool beer. Right. <laughs> I'm very much of the opinion that I think that all whirlpool beers tend to lack something. Mm-hmm. And so... Thank you for thank you for additional fuel for those. Yes, fire. right. <laughs> what about dry hopping? Because you had mentioned, okay, so uh, iso alpha acids or isomerized alpha acids do a lot for foam positivity. Mm-hmm. What happens with dry hopping? Because we're not really uh, we're not generating iso alpha uh, iso alpha acids there. We're taking in a lot of other compounds. Right, right, and you know, with dry hopping again, I. I can't give you a, like a set in stone scientific explanation. I can't give you a common sense one being that you're not getting those iso alpha acids and you're also introducing, um, you know, other components within the hops that might be foam negative. So I would say with dry hopping, you're not going to help your foam, but you're not necessarily going to hurt your foam. And why can't we buy Tetra at the Humber levels? Uh, you know what? I am not sure about that, but I don't think that's a terrible thing that we can't buy Tetra. I know, but that's how you get the dual head. Right, right. <laughs> that's the only reason I want is uh, <laughs> uh, Tetra is a hop compound, folks. Uh, and it's reputedly the thing that gives Duval that massive rocky head. That's the reason why I joke about it. Right. And that's also why you have you can have clear bottles of, you know, like MGD. Uh, that don't get skunked is because they use the tetra hops, so they don't have those isomerized alpha acids to interact with the UV light and cause the skunky flavor in your beer. There you go, science, both for good <laughs> and evil. All right, and of course we have to we have to ask you know on the service side, right? Because let's say that we do everything perfect, we, mm-hmm. we, we get we we get a wonderful beer into the keg, and we'll talk about carbonation in a second, folks. But we get everything into the keg; it's wonderful, it's perfect. We're pouring. What can I do on the service side that's going to either help or or kill my head? Uh, I am a member of the Dirty Glassware Mafia. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, to my detriment or benefit, I'm not sure sometimes, but when I, I train people on what dirty glassware looks like, I invite them to send me pictures of dirty glassware that they encounter, um, which means that sometimes I get like very rude pictures of dirty, of dirty glassware. It's the internet. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so clean glassware obviously is going to be one of the most important things. So let's say if, you know, if you're at home and one of, I think one of the best inventions and it's an excellent gift for beer people who don't want like a, you know, one weird like Simpsons drinking cup or something is a glass rinser that you can install in your kitchen sink. Um, I have one of those and it's been life changing, but that's why if, you know, if you're at a bar 
and they have a glass rinser, hopefully you're seeing them use it with every glass every time. But the purpose of that is to flush any you know residue, any uh, lint, any kind of leftover detergent or whatever out of the glass. So that way you're not getting uh, your beer served to you with you know bubbles clinging to the sides or relevant here very poor head retention. So you want to make sure that you're using detergents that are meant for glassware. If you're someplace like a, a bar, uh, like I don't have a dedicated glassware washer in my home uh, besides myself, um, but you know, like glassware goes into the dishwasher. Maybe someday I'll have my own glassware rinser uh, that's just for that. But if you're someplace like a bar, you know, you don't want your glassware being washed with your dirty dishes because you're going to get those fats and lipids on your glassware. You also want to make sure that you're using a detergent that's going to rinse well. That's going to get you really, really far in terms of having a having good foam or foam the way that it was intended to be uh, with a clean glass other things that matter are temperature. You know, if you've got uh, a colder beer is going to hold its carbonation more. Uh, and obviously the flip side of that, a warmer beer is not going to hold its carbonation as well. And that's going to, again, depend on the beer style, depend on the ABV of how much foam you should be expecting. But if you're serving your beer at the proper temperature, you know, that's going to be, let's say like 38 degrees, 38, 40 degrees, is going to be the best case scenario for your foam retention. And I'll throw in one additional shout out about the glass cleaning thing. I've been to more than one place out there that has commercial glass rinsing and all the glass washing, you know, like the little behind the bar glass washer. And the one thing that kills me in so many of those places is the number of times the glass has come out smelling like the cleaner. Oh, it drives me nuts. Yeah. Like you, you pick up a glass of beer and it starts to smell a little bleachy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've encountered that more than I like. I don't like that. Yes, yes. That, I think that was actually one of the most effective trainings I've ever done when I worked in a brewery was giving the bartenders the same beer and uh, two samples, one with the glass rinser and one without, and said, okay, taste these to understand why, why I say you should be using the glass rinser every time. And afterward I had bartenders who were like, I didn't realize it made that big of a difference and I will never skip this step again. There you go. Well, I will also say for those who do not have a glass rinser at home uh, and those who don't mind necessarily like say the first beer being less than picture perfect uh, <laughs> beer actually makes a pretty good glass rinser too. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Always, I always find like <laughs> if I pour myself a beer, drink that beer, and then rinse out my glass, the second beer is absolutely perfect in the glass. Right. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't have a glass rinser, I mean, just, you know, pour some water in there and rinse it or like swish it around a little bit. And that, that also gets you, a, you know, a good ways. All right. And this brings us over to carbonation because I do have one last service question that kind of ties in with the carbonation. One thing I've always noticed is if you have things improperly balanced on draft, like it seems like you'll get a lot of foam, but it recedes pretty quickly. Yes. Um, and I'm assuming that's a, a big factor too, like making sure that everything's properly balanced. Right. So, all right, let's get into carbonation. Then you and I can debate about uh, carbonation. <laughs> and beer. All right. So again, you don't get foam if you don't have bubbles. Correct. And, and you don't get liveliness in the beer if you don't have bubbles. Correct. So, Let's talk the, the the big debate because 
I think most homebrewers start with, you know, bottle priming, you know, like mm-hmm. you got my 12 ounce long necks and sitting on the floor with a capper, uh, a little bit of sugar and everything. Um, and then if you decide to be insane and you go into kegging, then suddenly it becomes <laughs> like, well, why am I priming? I'll just force inject CO2 into this. And for years, the big debate amongst homebrewers was always, well, you know, doing priming gives you a better carbonation mm-hmm. versus force injection. What do you think? I think that this is a sensory experiment that I can't wait to try on my own because, you know, learning about carbonation, it's your CO2 is CO2 is CO2. You're not creating a different kind of CO2 if you're priming versus if you're force carving. And I, I'm interested to see if there is a difference, if it's, you know, kind of like that decoction debate of whether you can taste a difference or whether you can't. And with, Bottle conditioning, priming sugar versus forced carb. I, I'm I'm curious to see. I mean, my hypothesis would be that obviously the the carbonation itself isn't different, but those two different processes is, are somehow affecting all of the other uh, aspects of that beer. So it has the impression of of being smoother or better or softer, but you know all of those are very subjective, kind of squishy terms. So. For me, I, I don't have a great answer. I know that there is something romantic about some, you know, something being bottle conditioned and like it was, it's taken some time um, versus, you know, you can force carb and have your beer ready really soon. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure what the differences are. That is something that I've been planning to do as kind of a side-by-side blind tasting to see for myself and then with others is like, is is there really a difference? And if so, what what really is going on? Because you're not making a different kind of carbonation when you're doing that. I can see the argument that the flavor is going to be different because you have yeast activity, right? Mm-hmm. So I could see that being a difference. But the one that always makes me really kind of scratch my head because I'm trying to figure out what the mechanism would be for it is you'll always hear people argue that, oh, you get a finer bubbling you know, mm-hmm. when you when you bottle condition as opposed to when you force inject. And I'm trying to think, right. because to your point, CO2 is CO2, uh, and it's not going to change the bubble size as it's coming out of solution necessarily, right. just from the, just from the method of introduction. Is there something happening with the re-fermentation that, that causes that? I mean, is it actually a thing, or is it, to your point, just romanticism, and this is better because it's old-fashioned? Right, right. And definitely, you know, smaller bubbles are going to have, like very small bubbles with a uniform size are going to have superior stability. Uh, so I can see with using something like priming sugar, since it's a slower process, it's not quite as violent, that maybe that does have something to do with just your bubble size. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could, I could definitely see that being one of the factors. Right. And well, and that leads into the, the next question, which is uh, even inside the forced injection methodology, there's a lot of debates, right? Uh, professional brewers use tanks with carb stones in them. Uh, a lot of home brewers will just basically stick the gas on the keg and, and leave it for one to two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I never do that because I'm never actually thinking that far ahead and, and usually scrambling just before. <laughs> right. Going, oh God, I got carbonate five beers. Right. And so the thing I've always done is to do kind of a rocking carbonation, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, people who've listened, I get the beer, I get the beer ice cold. I set my PSI on my regulator to about one above the proper PSI on the, on the carbonation serving tables. 
and mm-hmm. then I rock it back and forth for for ten minutes and right. come out the other side. And I don't like the I don't like the uncontrolled here. Set the set the regulator to thirty psi and slam shake it. But there are some people who also argue that there's a difference even there. Um, that like when you're doing the rocking, you're wasting albumin in the in the in the beer because it can only mm-hmm. bubble up once. Right, and so therefore I'm destroying potential bubbles by doing this process. Any thoughts? I mean, I've done it both ways for the same reason where, you know, there's a difference between the beer that I'm kegging just to drink and the beer that I'm kegging to like enter a competition that, you know, to your point, it's like, oh, this is due tomorrow. Uh, so we need to do the, you know, the rock. Um, I, I can see that argument of knocking some of that out of losing something because you're in your packaging and transferring process. You're not going to be able to do anything that's going to improve your foam or, you know, carbonation beyond just carbonating it. But there is a lot that you can do to harm it. Um, but I, I know that that's the, the rocking and carving is, is common, even with a lot of small craft breweries. So I, I don't have a solid stance on it. I've done it when it serves me. And I don't know, you know, maybe I won like a, a second place instead of first place because I did that. I don't know. Um, I think that that would, that would be another interesting uh, sensory thing to do to see like does it make a difference what is being lost and what is that perception of it right and then you got to look at things out out there like say the blickman quick carb which kind of mm-hmm. combines the two right here we're going to impeller pump the beer across a carbonation stone right uh, and recirculate that multiple times which has its own pitfalls right uh, you know, so yeah I'm, I'm i'm really curious i honestly i think most of the time with sort of the problem that people have with quick carb processes as opposed to low and slow mm-hmm. is that they miss their they miss their PSI target target in the keg. Right. And then when they go to serve it, it comes shooting out the cobra line. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and and to our, our point earlier about balancing the draft systems, you know, beer shooting out of the cobra line looks very dramatic, but it tends to blow out all of its CO2 pretty quick. Right, exactly. Yes. What else do we have to worry about with carbonation? Um, with carbonation, it's, you know, your temperature, like you said, you want you want your beer cold. You don't want to try to force carb it when it's warm. Um, it will still carb, but it's going to be a lot slower. And I actually had that. This was a very duh moment for me. Uh, a few months ago, I had a beer that just was not carbing, and it was in my uh, deep freezer, kegerator, and... You know, it's like, well, there's no leaks. I checked everywhere for leaks and completely forgetting my, you know, my draft systems training that says temperature is the number one issue when you've got something going on with your draft system. It's a temperature issue somewhere. And come to find out that the the deep freezer wasn't functioning correctly. So it was like 52 in there. So that's why it was taking so long for it to carb. So the colder your beer is, the more you're going to be able to supersaturate it with carbonation. Um, and yeah, and you know, like I said, with the just the storage and stuff, if you're knocking out the carbonation, you can't get that back. Um, and I remember speaking to a home brewer one time who was using uh, priming sugar and he was like, well, I can't get my beer to carb, so I just keep pouring it from one bottle to the next, um, but it's not helping the carbonation. And that's when I realized, like, oh, just because somebody is older than me doesn't mean that they they know more than I do when it comes to homebrewing. Um, so, you know, that just treating your beer well and gently is going to help you retain that carbonation as well. well to that point, this is one of those things where 
brewing is kind of funny for being the the craft that it is because there's a lot of stuff that's hidebound. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, I do this this way because I was taught to do it this way. Right. Um, and so sometimes, yeah, being a younger brewer can have an advantage because you don't <laughs> learn the old way. <laughs> right. Before before I ask you the my final question for the day, um, anything else that people need to think about when they're thinking about foam, thinking about carbonation? What what do people do that you that drives you nuts? And what do you think that they really need to do more of? I really love nice looking beer and I, I love the presentation. And if I'm, you know, if I'm getting something that has like terrible head on it or the, the carbonation is not right, like that really does kind of put a damper on the entire experience, even if the beer itself is wonderful. Um, so I do like for people to at least have more of an understanding with, with foam and how that's going to one, all the processes and ingredients that can impact that and how you can make, you know, when you pour this beer is this beautiful looking glass of beer that you can't wait to drink. Um, and then I, you know, like I said, I'm part of the dirty glassware mafia. Don't, don't do all of that hard work and serve your beer in dirty glasses. Even if it's you sitting at home, you deserve beer in a clean glass. Yeah. Now I'm looking around the brewery going, I got to clean some glassware. <laughs> well, and to your point though, about like the visual beauty and the, and the wedding, the appetite. I mean, there's a reason why you consistently see things like beauty shots from uh, Ashley's beers at uh, Beerstadt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that big, beautiful, slow pour pills with the rocky head that she's yes. got. I mean, there's a reason people take pictures of that and it's not just because it looks pretty. Right. Actually, speaking of which, what what do you think about the whole slow pour thing and the side pulls and all that that's kind of becoming more? I am a fan as long as people understand how to use them correctly. And I, I'm seeing more breweries installing them without really having an appreciation of the tradition with them. No. Uh, and that's kind of a, that's kind of, right. Um, that's kind of a tightrope to walk because again, you don't want to say, well, it's always been done this way. So it always has to be done this way. But I do think with something like a side pull, you know, that is so steeped in tradition that it is, if you're going to invest the money in that, invest the money in also having proper glassware and training your bartenders, you know, are you offering each one of the three pours, then make sure that everybody knows what that means and how to do it. And, and I'm not expecting perfection here, but I was at a brewery recently and ordered a Mleco pour off of their side pool faucet and just got a, a, a regular pour and was like, Oh, okay. This is still a delicious beer, but this isn't exactly what I ordered. Um, so I think that it's good. I like anything that's going to spark interest and conversation across the bar. And I think that side pools can do that with customers and give you an opportunity to, you know, to discuss those. Um, I'm also a very big fan, especially now, you know, after doing all the research into foam of, I know people who jokingly call it the Mosier pour, right? So you just pour straight down the middle of the glass and let it foam a little bit, let that foam collapse, pour a little bit more to get that like slow pour, big fluffy meringue head. I love doing that. And that's, that is, that process is giving you better long lasting foam. It's more of a wet foam and it's, you know, it just adds to the, the, to the experience. It's the anticipation you've, you're really working on making this glass of beer, just perfect, you know, and, and doing everything you can to enjoy every second of it. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of slow pours and, and side pulls as, as side pulls, as long as people understand how to use them correctly. 
constant battle inside the brewing world. Yep. <laughs> All right. And the last thing I'm going to ask you is, what do we do about canned carbonation? I don't know. I don't have, I don't have a good answer for that because I know, you know, again, being sensitive to the fact that there are a lot more smaller breweries now who are canning their beers. And, you know, we were, we were discussing before we started recording, I have a friend whose brewery, everything gets carved at the exact same level. Everything goes into cans with that exact same carb level. And it's, it's fine. It's fine the way like you're just in the middle ground and it's inoffensive, but it's not the same, you know, that if you're, if you've got uh, a Saison that's canned, you're part of that experience is having, you know, that, that foam and the carbonation. And when you don't have it, it's just, it changes the experience. Um, I, I don't know what, what to do <laughs> about canned carbonation, um, except that like pleading with like wild goose or someone to, uh, you know, make, being able to handle that on a very small canning line, uh, a little bit more manageable yeah. for people. All right. And, and for everybody who hasn't dealt with it and all the professional brewers are yelling at us to shut up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. All these, all these small canning lines and even a lot of the larger canning lines, uh, they have a very narrow range at which they work very well in terms of carbonation. Mm -hmm. And the second you step outside that range, things go screwy. So that's the reason right. why so many canned beers are kind of, in that what you just said, it's all the same because we know that works. Right. And, you know, I think that's, I, 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 well, if I'm being optimistic and saying if craft brewers continue to can, you know, if craft brewing continues to be kind of a viable thing, I think the technology will get there. But for, you know, up until what the last maybe even five years, if you were canning beer, you're canning some sort of micro lager more likely than not. Mm -hmm. And that does have, you know, a set carbonation level that's going to be kind of high. Mm -hmm. And canning lines didn't have to be able to do anything else because there wasn't anything else being canned. Right. Well, I think this is a fair point to leave on, but I will say homebrewers often talk about with, uh, you know, star sand, don't fear the foam. Uh, mm -hmm. In the particular case here with the beer, I would say, don't forget to respect your foam. Yes. <laughs> Great. Have a healthy fear of the foam, you know, like an appreciation. Appreciate the foam, <laughs> dang it. You worked hard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at beer foam. How important do you consider your foam? And do you have any special tips or tricks for making your beer bubbles pop? Let us know. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew form out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. 